Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. You are in for a treat. I have with me today, Elisa Childers. Elisa is a wife, a mom, an author, a blogger, a speaker, worship leader as well. Uh, you may remember in the early 2000s, she was uh, an original member of the award-winning CCM group called Zoe Girl. She's a popular speaker at apologetics and Christian worldview conferences, including Rethink. She's been published at the Gospel Coalition, Crosswalk, The Stream, For Every Mom, Decision Magazine, and The Christian Post, just to name a few. Her blog post, Girl, Wash Your Face, What Rachel Hollis Gets Right and Wrong, received more than a million views. And you can connect with Elisa online at elisachilders.com. From there, you'll find all sorts of resources, links to social media channels, speaking locations to hear Elisa live. I'd highly recommend that. She's coming to our area in October. I'm looking forward to seeing her. Our conversation today ranges from Elisa's music, her background, her early years, and what inspired her to write and perform to what moved her to pursue a deeper knowledge of God's Word and share her concerns with the emerging shift within the church known as progressive Christianity. Now, that may be a new concept for you, but I can assure you it's been floating around in obvious and not so obvious ways for a long, long time. Uh, today, it's morphed into kind of an extreme position, but it can be hidden in plain sight. We'll talk about her recent book, Live Your Truth and Other Lies, and she is well known for her first book and its expose of progressive Christianity entitled Another Gospel, with a question mark at the end. You'll want to check them both out wherever you get books. So in addition to her own podcast, Elisa and Natasha Crane co-host a show called Unshaken Faith Podcast. You'll want to track that one down as well. Uh, Elisa and Natasha's words, they say, will help you be equipped, emboldened, and encouraged to speak truth without fear, to love the way God loves, and to stand firm no matter the cost. It's recorded in shorter segments, about 15 minutes or so, but you'll learn something like I do every time you tune in, in addition to Elisa Children's Podcast, which is an amazing resource for me and has been for quite a while now. They just finished an unshaken conference, they call it, in early May in Chino Hills, California, with, I think that there's a couple more planned this year. So you, you know, if you want to go in person, you want to see uh, Natasha, Lisa, uh, and most likely someone else joining them, that's available to you. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation today. Elisa, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your heart, your mission, your ministry with our audience. Thanks so much. Well, I've been really looking forward to this. So yeah, it's great to be here. Well, that's great. Now I'm going to start off um, a little differently. I have a confession to make to you. Zoe Girl was not on my playlist <laughs> in the early 2000s. Is that okay? I mean, it, that's a confession. You, I'll give you a pass on that. That'll be all right. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, my daughter, maybe so, and some other people I knew. But you know, I was. Well, it was on hers. Was also Newsboys, oh, Backstreet yeah. Boys. You remember that? Oh yeah. You well, <laughs> you you were not exactly our target demographic, so. I'm convinced. Thank it's you all for good. sharing that. That's probably why. Uh, it's so good. <laughs> Well, we have a lot to talk about today that I know our audience is going to be intrigued about, but I first want to start with maybe a little bit about your background, some of the things that you experienced growing up, you know, your faith, your family, how God called you to do what you're doing today and share maybe some of that music, but some of what God's uh, brought you to even as we talk today, if you would. Well, I've been a Christian my whole life. In fact, I don't even remember a time when I wasn't aware of 
Jesus uh, when I wasn't deeply convinced that the Bible was God's word. I knew just as far back as I could read and write that I could read God's word, trust God's word, live by God's word. And not that I did that all perfectly throughout my whole life, certainly not, but I never wavered from knowing that the Bible was God's word and that I knew and loved Jesus. I walked with him my whole life. Kind of made that official when I was about five. I remember my mom came into the living room where I was sitting and said, do you want to, I don't know how she said it, maybe ask Jesus in your heart or something Mm -hmm. like that. And so I I remember being kind of like, well, I mean, I already know him, but I prayed the prayer with her. And Mm -hmm. I guess that, you know, was sort of the moment when I cognitively, you know, with my mind said, okay, I trust in Jesus and just did my best to walk with him. Um, really loved reading God's word, had a vibrant prayer life all growing up, was involved in ministry at a very young age. When I was uh, about eight or nine, my mom would take us out to the Fred Jordan mission and we worked the soup lines. And then I would do st- what we called street ministry with my dad, where we'd sing and preach the gospel and, and witness to people. Uh, and so I, I, the the Christians that I was around were the real thing. They really loved God. They loved his word and they loved other people. And I had a pretty good experience with Christianity growing up. And I think because of that, I never really doubted it. I never felt the need to test it intellectually. So I think looking back now, my faith might've been a little bit intellectually weak. Although I knew the, I knew the Bible, I really didn't know much else. And I couldn't have articulated why I believed the things that I did other than just saying, well, because the Bible says so. And so growing up, it was, um, it was really sweet in that sense. Just, I had this real sweet relationship with the Lord and not that I didn't have my own trials and, and difficulties. I certainly did, but intellectual doubt was just not one of them. And that, that would be something that would come quite a bit later. So after high school, I moved to New York for a year and a half to two years. I worked in a, a, a youth center on the lower East side of Manhattan and then moved back to LA, then ended up going to Nashville to be in, as you mentioned, Zoe girl, mm-hmm. and did that for about seven or eight years. And, you know, throughout that time, got married and started having kids. And and that's really actually was after that, that my faith really was shaken for the first time intellectually. Well, so that's interesting. You say you got married. I Rumor has it, it was the drummer. Is that right? Is that... I did. Yeah, I, I married our drummer. <laughs> okay. I'm a walking cliche, right? <laughs> I love it. You know what? There's such a, um, a parallel story when you're when you're sharing that. I'm thinking back at my life too. Is probably is when I could say Jesus. That's often what I say. I think I believed. You know, I was nine yeah. years old, and so I, I relate to that story so much. But there was parts of it too, like you'll probably share here, where where things got a little bit sideways, sideways, and derailed a bit, and you had to start questioning things. So, so you're in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Right. How did that, how did that then sort of your music, how, how did that even come about you know, to begin with, if you will? Well, I grew up around it. So my dad was in the band Love Song, which people kind of know now again, because of the movie Jesus Revolution. So if anybody listening or watching saw Jesus Revolution, the band Love Song that was featured is my dad's band. So he got saved at Calvary Chapel, was a big part of that whole Jesus movement. So that's kind of the uh, environment that I grew up around, although I did actually did not grow up at Calvary Chapel. I was a year old when my parents moved away from Orange County into the San Fernando Valley. So, uh, but Calvary Chapel was always a huge part of my upbringing. We I knew Chuck Smith and you know called him Papa Chuck and would see him throughout my life. But um, that's actually not where I grew up. But 
my dad was, uh, after Love Song, went on to become a solo artist in contemporary Christian music and did that my whole life and still does. He still goes to churches and sings. He's never not done that. So oh my gosh, I don't think I knew that. That's, that's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And and so he still does that. He, he kind of switched over into worship before worship was really like the worship genre really was all that popular. Um, back in like the early 90s, I want to say maybe even late 80s, he he was started to do worship music. And uh, so he's been worship leading for that long. So I grew up around it. And then when I was about 25, I I had moved back to LA where I grew up. And I knew that I always knew, even back since I was maybe 13 or 14 years old, that I wanted to go into music. I really sensed that was what God wanted me to do with my life. I never considered any other vocation, never would have dreamed I'd be doing writing books and speaking. I just never envisioned any of that. And so when I was about 25, uh, through some connections my dad had, I sent a demo to some people in Nashville. And around that same time, they had the idea of putting together a girl group that would kind of be like a Christian Spice Girls. I don't know if you remember the Spice Girls. <laughs> that I do back. remember. Yes, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I had a daughter that would have so, listened to them too. So. <laughs> yes. So they saw that you know there needed to be maybe some kind of Christian version of that. So they actually put our group together. And um, so I met the other two girls and then we started Zoe Girl. And so, like I said, I toured for maybe seven or eight years in Zoe Girl. And it was wonderful. It was such a great experience getting to minister to young girls and hoping to give them courage and boldness to stand for Jesus mm -hmm. on their public school campuses. Yeah. And um, it was also hard. It was a hard time. I've written about that a little bit in, in both of my books. But overall, I just think back with such sweetness and fond memories of that time of getting to do that. Wow. And I understand how um, how impactful music can be in all our lives, right? It's um, it's something we almost can relate to at different points in time. I mentioned that earlier and remembering with my daughter growing up and it just takes you back immediately. Uh, do you do, get, do you get to do any of that anymore? Do you just sing, play? Do you do anything like that at this point or? Well, as up up until about 2020, when COVID hit, yeah. I was still leading worship. So I would I was an artist in residence at a church in Ohio. So every four or five weeks, I would drive up there and do their weekend services. And then right. COVID kind of shut that whole thing down. So I haven't really been doing much anymore, but I do have a little something in the works that I haven't officially announced yet, but I'm happy to talk about it. I There have been some songs that I've been writing over the past several years, really since uh, the faith crisis that I went through. I know we haven't really talked about that yet, but there was a faith crisis in there that happened after Zoe Girl. And after my faith was rebuilt, I started to write new songs. And so we're, I'm actually going to record five of them and release them hopefully next October. You so heard it I'm, here first, everybody. So. Yeah, this is. I think this is the first time I've officially said it. That's great. So I'm looking forward to that. I have a producer friend here in Nashville that I'm going to work with and just, you know, it's nothing fancy. I'm not going to go with a label or just myself. And I'm just going to put it out there for anybody that it might minister to and, and touch their hearts in some way. Yeah, I love that. So, um, okay. Faith crisis, because, you know, everybody's like, well, what was that? For right. You? Um, I, I think all of us to some degree, I, I don't know if you're familiar There's a study done by George Barna. This was probably a decade ago, but he, he he actually interviewed 15,000 people. It's, uh, the book that came out of it was called Maximum Faith, Live Like Jesus. I don't know if you're familiar, but um, he was able to kind of boil things down to a 10-stop journey, as he called it. It's great. It's great for anybody that wants to do the research. It's even on our website. 
stop five is is this sort of doing for for god space that about 89 percent, according to his study of christians they kind of get stuck there mm. but beyond that there becomes this place of spiritual discontentment or this thing that kind of comes into our life where we're saying is really this all there is you know is this it i mean this you know i got my what we call around here ticket to heaven i'm, I'm in mm -hmm. but like this is really hard i'm grinding it out every day trying to do all the right things and stop uh, seven is uh, personal brokenness. A lot of what we do in the ministry is around that conversation, stop seven, which is, okay, now that I've experienced something like you're about to share with us, what am I going to do with that, right? And then he goes on to say, well, then the, the, the growth and wholeness and, and the love God and love others becomes this deeper, more meaningful thing. What you're called to right now, even. So tell us for you, what was that then for, for that crisis of faith? Yeah. Well, in my case, it was intellectual. And I had gone through difficulties and struggles and sufferings even in other areas. And like you mentioned, those just brought me closer to the Lord and more deeply persuaded that his word is true. But it was, I man, I was maybe 33, you know, coming up on my mid 30s, maybe 34. And I never dreamed I would ever experience intellectual doubt. I just, you know, even growing up, I mentioned we did street ministry. I would meet people from all sorts of different religions and worldviews and share the gospel with them. So I met atheists and agnostics and even Satanists who would say, ah, well, that's not true. And the Bible has been corrupted, or they would say all these things, or Jesus wasn't really resurrected. But I could just dismiss what they said because I just thought, well, they just don't, they don't know. They, they haven't experienced what I've experienced, or they just don't know that the Bible is God's word. And one day they'll know. But anything that contradicted God's word, it was just easy to kind of just sweep it to the side and move on to the next person. And so it wasn't until I was in, like I said, nearing my mid-30s that I was, uh, Zoe Girl had come off the road and I was married with a, ba a baby at the time. In fact, she was maybe heading toward toddlerhood at this time. And we started attending a church in Middle Tennessee, right here in the heart of the Bible Belt, where I still live. And we loved this church. We just loved the sense of community we found there. We loved that the pastor had these intellectual, more an intellectual approach to his sermons. I, he, he gave all sorts of context that I'd never heard, which I realize now looking back, probably a lot of it wasn't even true, but there was a lot going on that I just, it was very exciting to us. And so after we were attending there for about eight months, the pastor kind of singled me out. He said, I want you to join this small study group that I have going and it's very exclusive. It's, you know, what we talk about in the class, we're going to keep within the class. And it's for these deeper thinkers. And he said, there's something about you that's a little different. And I think you're really going to enjoy this. And so I went to the first class and was very curious and very excited because I always wanted to dig deeper into my faith. Also, because he had compared it to seminary. He said, you go through this four-year class, you're going to get a seminary level education. And I thought, I want that. I want to dig deeper. I want to be able to give these reasons. And so uh, in the first class, he basically admitted to the class that he was an agnostic and he called himself a hopeful agnostic. And of course, as you can imagine, every red flag starts firing off mm. and you know, but I thought, well, I don't want to be judgmental. I'm just going to hear him out. Maybe he's just being really honest and and this is a safe place to do that. And so I didn't want to be judgmental. So I just kind of put those concerns to the side. But what I was really unprepared for was that over the course of the four months that I lasted in the class, every 
precious core belief. I'm not talking about rethinking your eschatology or rethinking what you think about women in ministry. Not that these are unimportant issues. They're very important issues, but that wouldn't have rattled me as much. But it was like rethinking, do we really think Jesus was raised from the dead? And can we really trust the Bible? Did the people we think wrote, wrote the Bible really write it? And then, of course, all of the information and the answers that were given were from a more skeptical, liberal persuasion. Right. So all of the material we were reading and the discussions we were having, I was uh, the only person, to my knowledge, in the class that held on to what I would call a historic Christian faith, because I just knew that the atonement of Jesus was a non-negotiable. I knew I didn't know a lot intellectually, but I knew that if Jesus didn't die on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins, that I was doomed. And so the thing that really rattled me, though, was that, like I mentioned before, when I would talk to an atheist or something as a young girl, I could dismiss what they were saying because I stood on God's word. But what this pastor was able to do intellectually was convince me that we didn't even have what they originally wrote anymore. And that just completely knocked the legs out from under my worldview, because I thought, well, if I don't even actually have access to the word of God, then how can I know anything? (laughs) Now, I also at the same time knew that there's a reason the church has trusted the Bible for thousands of years. I knew it couldn't just be one guy come along in, you know, 2011 or whatever it was and figure it all out. So I knew there had to be answers out there. I just didn't know where to look to find them. And a lot of damage was done to my faith. So when we left the class, I found myself isolated. I was pregnant now with my second child. And that's kind of an isolating time, I think, for women anyway. And all of the doubts that he had planted in the class began to really take root and grow. I was, again, even in the class, I was able to kind of stave them off because I would try to debate him. I would go home and I would... I would Google stuff and come back and I was, you know, did my How'd best. How'd that go? That go a little uh, tricky? <laughs> it was tricky. You know, I I do have to say, I am so thankful looking back for the fact that I knew the word of God, even though I didn't really know how to interpret it really properly. I think, you know, I didn't really know what hermeneutics was or systematic theology or any of that stuff, but I knew what it said and I generally knew what it meant. And so he would say all these facts about history or or logic or something that I didn't really know if that was true. But he would actually misquote and misconstrue the Bible. And that's when I knew, oh, okay, well, if he's doing that with the Bible, then he must be maybe doing that with these other facts. And so I, um, yeah, I was able to, I think, kind of hold my own in a couple of those debates when it yeah. came to the actual Bible. Um, but it was really after we le- I left the class that I just, I was thrown into a dark night of the soul where my own faith was just unraveling. I was I was feeling it slip away to the point where when I would pray, it felt like I was just talking into a black hole. It was just like complete abyss, a, a void. Well, and it sounds like that stop six, stop seven piece that Barna described, right? That mm, discontentment, that brokenness. What do you do with that? Wow. Yeah, because I all of all of the the things that I had based my life on my whole life. I was intellectually persuaded at this point weren't true. So I was completely just lost and broken. And I just remember crying out to God one night and I just said, God, if you're real, if these things I've believed about you my whole life are true, I need, I need answers. Mm -hmm. I don't need an experience. I had plenty of experience. I need answers, intellectual answers. And so 
the Lord was so faithful to answer that prayer. He led me to study apologetics and philosophy and church history and hermeneutics and all the things I mentioned I didn't really know a lot about before. And it was actually several years. It was five or six really intensive years of studying um, when I came out on the other side of it with my faith restabilized and, and maybe in some ways stronger, but in other ways, I, I wrote in my book that I feel like I still walk with a limp in some areas yes. uh, intellectually, but I'm so thankful to God for answering that prayer. And I just, I didn't know all of that was out there. I just didn't know. I didn't know there was anybody who could answer this guy. And uh, uh, it sounds yeah. like that's, so the crisis of faith is not necessarily a bad thing for you, was it, at that moment? When you when you look at the other side of it, I mean, it was it felt bad in the middle of it. Yeah. Messy middle, but there's this whole, you almost have to believe the Holy Spirit just led you to a space. Now look where it, where it led you, right? Oh, so, I'm so thankful. I, I look back. It was, I mean, probably other than the death of my nephew, it was, it was probably the hardest thing I ever walked through because yeah. it was my core identity. It was everything about sure. who I am. Yeah. That was completely unraveled, you know, on the floor before me, metaphorically speaking. And so uh, just rebuilding that was, it was painful, incredibly painful. Wow. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. I know that's, you know, it's, you know, you relive that a lot, I know, but sharing that such a transition in your life is it's highly impactful. I know for our audience, it, it will mean a lot. We talk about brokenness a lot around here. We talk about identity and what you know, how that's hijacked in the world we live in today. Let's face it. Well, it's been hijacked for a long time. <laughs> it started yeah. back in the beginning. But, um, you know, when we we don't understand the lies that are either spoken over us or things that people, you know, share and take into our life, influential people, you know, here you are, a pastor, somebody you respected, somebody you had hoped for a better, you know, result from, right? Mm -hmm. And it just didn't happen in uh, the way you had hoped for. But, I have since, like you, I've met pastors that I wonder, why are they in the pulpit preaching Jesus? There is some sideways stuff coming in here. And you're, you know, yes, thankfully, I, I grew up in the church in a way that I, I understood, but just a little tweak here and there can, all of a sudden, it's a toehold, you know, pulls you away. And yeah. so I, I love what you did. And you wrote about, I'll hold this up for anybody, right? So you recognize that. Mm -hmm. Um Crisis of Faith, I think, was your first chapter in that, wasn't it, in here? I believe so, yeah. yeah. You quoted C.S. Lewis, no surprise there, by the way, uh, from, I think it was a grief observed, if I'm not mistaken. You said, you never know how much you really believe anything until it's mm -hmm. truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to mm. you, right? Yeah. So great quote. I, I'm mm. familiar with the work of C.S. Lewis, studied recently Mere Christianity all over again, which was a, we had a great time with it. Where did that then take you? And you can certainly refer to your work here. We want to talk, I want to talk about this, but I also want to talk about your later latest book as well. But um, you know, you started there to explain that. Yeah. What what then took place in your life as as a result of those five years you talked about? What mm -hmm. was the trigger to kind of take you where you are today? What what moved you there? I remember um just over those years of study. A lot of my friends who had still been attending this church would share things on Facebook and they would share articles and I would read the articles. Now, in the this would be more in the beginning of my rebuild, I guess you could call it. Mm -hmm. But I would I would read these articles and I would say, I know there's something, I know this is wrong, I know this is off, but I don't know how to refute it. I don't know how to articulate the reasons or or organize my thoughts in a way mm -hmm. that I could actually refute and rebut this. 
And that was incredibly frustrating to me. And they began to share about progressive Christianity. In fact, the church that this faith crisis was facilitated within years later, right around the time that my faith had kind of come full circle and, and come back to me, they came out as uh, basically they said they took down the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed from their website. They wrote their own creed that emphasized the power of personal conscience. They put that up on their website and they said, we are now a fully inclusive, progressive Christian community. And so that coinciding with a lot of the articles, I saw some of my friends who had really drifted into this progressive Christianity, what they were sharing. I, I thought, you know, I, it, well, okay, let me back up a bit. Because when I started studying apologetics and history and philosophy and all that, I went to the people who were refuting the atheists. And the reason that worked is because a lot of the claims that the progressive Christians were making, these Christians that would later become, you know, openly progressive Christians, they were the same claims the atheists made. So you have an atheist saying the Bible's been corrupted. We don't have this, you know, there's all these mistakes in the manuscripts. There's this and that. Well, that's exactly what the progressive Christians were saying, but they were just maintaining some sort of belief in some kind of a Jesus. Right. And and so when I was getting helped by these different apologists who had these ministries, it all translated for me. But what I realized when I when this church changed their branding essentially was that there's really nobody talking about the movement of progressive Christianity at all. I mean, you might go on Gospel Coalition and find a right. somebody reviewing a Rob Bell book or mm -hmm. you know refuting something somebody Richard Rohr or something, yes. but nothing where it's like hey, these people are all working together toward the same goal. And they kind of believe the same core things, even if they won't necessarily admit that. Right. And so what I did at that time was I, around this time, I, I had started a blog, just a little apologetics blog. And I wasn't even talking about progressive Christianity yet. I was just more, you know, does God exist? Can we trust the Bible? Just all the staples, right? I just thought, right. you know, well, that's good. Well, that's a good place that. to start. <laughs> yeah. And so um, I remember running into a friend that I had met in the apologetics community. And she said, um, you know, she was asking how my blog was going. And, and she said, I, I said, well, I don't really give my own opinion. I just kind of translate apologetics material for regular people. Hmm. And she's like, oh, no, you should give your opinion. And so I thought, well, okay, maybe I should write something about progressive Christianity. So I went home and I wrote an article called Five Signs Your Church Might Be Heading Toward Progressive Christianity. And it went viral. It had wow. hundreds sure. of thousands of views within the first week. Wow. And that's when I realized, oh, my goodness, there really isn't anybody talking about the movement. And so that's when I began to focus pretty much primarily on progressive Christianity. And then out of that flowed the podcast. And then I had another article that went even more viral than that one a couple of years later. And that's what led to me having the opportunity to write the book you just held up, which is another gospel. And so that in that book, I really chronicle the journey of walking through all of that doubt. What questions was I asking? Where did I find the answers? What different materials did I have access to that would help me think these questions through? And then along the way, I'm addressing and refuting to the best of my ability, the movement of progressive Christianity and kind of analyzing it as well. So that's really what that book was about. And I was really thankful to have the opportunity to write that book. It was a book I actually didn't really want to write hmm. because as you mentioned, you alluded to earlier, it's painful to sure. relive all this stuff. And I had to do that 
it's not as painful now because I think once you write it all down, it kind of just comes out and then it does. Yeah, it it's does. not as hard to talk about. Yeah. But it was very emotionally draining to write that book, to recall all of those events and the pain that I was in and try to describe it and 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 walk the reader through the rebuild process while shining light on and, and analyzing and, and exposing this movement that's really been growing in the church for quite a while. Well, this is a good time for us to break in this two-part series with Elisa Childers as my interview will continue, part two, the next time we gather. And I invite you to come back, join us. We will go deeper into progressive Christianity, what it means. Uh, she's written a lot about this subject. And as a modern day, I call her apologist. She has much to, to sow into this conversation. And so I'm looking forward to having her back. So please join us again next time, part two of my interview with Elisa Childers. This was another episode of the Embracing Brokenness podcast. For more information on Embracing Brokenness Ministries, or to subscribe to our blog, podcast, YouTube channel, or engage with us on social media, please visit our website at embracingbrokenness.org. Thanks for joining us.